Welcome to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday morning to you. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. Bill, how are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing great. I hope you are. It's just, uh, well, we know it's summer. Yes. And it's uh, amazing that it's already June the 1st. Uh, wow. Where where has this year gone? <laughs> this year is flying by, and uh, and boy, this past week with the heat, it's uh, it's made us feel that this it's maybe a little bit slower than we thought. Well, that's true. Actually, it was wonderful to have a long weekend last weekend, uh, and I guess this weekend we're all re- recovering from from last weekend. But our weather's been other than hot, it's been really nice. So. Don't have a whole lot to complain about. No, we don't have in that regard, and it, it really wouldn't do any good anyway. Well, that's Bill. true. Nobody listens to you when you complain. They just turn you off. That's right. It's important for all of us to know, so we might as well not complain, right? That's right. Let's get to the good <laughs> stuff, Bill. We're going to continue our series here on legal documents. We're taking an in-depth look at some of the critical legal documents that we have when it comes to a great asset protection or estate plan. And, Bill, we've focused on will. We've focused on uh, what, what did we do last week? Again? Well, last week we did the general durable general. power of attorney, right. which is, uh, I mean, I'm ashamed of you, Jason. That's a very, very important document to remember. I had too much fun last week. I guess so. So uh, we started out talking about wills and the fact that the death rate is still 100% and that uh, <laughs> if uh, we want to control who gets our property at our death, uh, a last will and testament is a big part of that. And that's whether you have a trust, a revocable trust plan or not. Uh, and it's and it's also important uh, whether you have other situations uh, such as beneficiary designations or joint accounts with right of survivorship or pay on death, transfer on death, uh, accommodations with uh, banks and financial institutions and the like. Uh, and then, of course, last week we talked about the general durable power of attorney, which is the number one critical document for lifetime planning for asset protection, which this show is all about, asset protection. And so to the degree that a senior or others wants to maintain control and independence, control of their assets, control of their life, where they live, what they do, uh, managing their own property, to the degree that you're interested in maintaining independence and control, having an effective general durable power of attorney is the number one way to do it. Now, you have to have someone you trust. That's the key because you want to give them an advanced power where there is just a maximum amount of authority given. Now, you don't give that kind of authority to someone that you don't trust absolutely. Uh, But that advanced general durable power of attorney is the key document to where uh, a loved one on your behalf can move property around for you in, in order to give you maximum asset protection without creating irrevocable trusts five years before you, you might need them or things like that. And so it's to me that is the one key document. And it's also the document that most seniors either don't have at all or what they have won't work. 
And so uh, because the great majority of people have a regular, simple, basic power of attorney. And that won't work for asset protection planning. That'll allow you to sell the house or sell the truck or car and and things like that, pay your bills. But it's not going to allow your agent to move things around in order to protect it for yourself, your spouse, and your family. So that's a key document, okay? And the, today I wanted to focus on the health care power of attorney, and, and that's a key document, too, if, if your life and your body is important to you. <laughs> and I think it is for most of us. Um, and it's a recognition that there will be times in our life where we cannot speak for ourselves, and someone has to fill in for us. And... Uh, by executing, and that means to sign, <laughs> a, a healthcare power of attorney that allows us, for, for each of us, to select a person or persons whom we trust to make healthcare decisions for us when we cannot do it for ourselves. That's a really important concept. Now, just like with the general durable power of attorney, a, a healthcare agent, the person we select to be our, our power of attorney for us, has a fiduciary duty. You know, uh, you hear me talk about fiduciary duties a lot. And that means that the, the person in, uh, that you've appointed can't just do what they want to do. They're supposed to do what you would want to do. <laughs> That's a really important concept because they're acting not on their own behalf. They're acting on your behalf. And, and so in North Carolina, and this rule is not consistent across the, state, uh, across the country, um, in North Carolina, the number one fiduciary do, duty of the agent is to do what you would do. If the agent knows the, the kind of decision that you would make for yourself – their job is to uh, uh, basically make the same kind of decision that you would make. And uh, the second duty of a fiduciary in North Carolina is in the event that you don't have a clue <laughs> what decision would be made, then the second job is to do what's in your best interest. That, uh, so those are two very important concepts. Now, uh, around the country, it's not the same, although there are numbers of states that, like North Carolina, have the fiduciary rules the same way that North Carolina does. But there's another group of states that um, the number one duty is to do what's in your best interest. So it's, they don't look at what you would do. And, and North Carolina recognizes the fact that we're all individuals. We all... Uh, make decisions uh, for ourselves that are not necessarily in our best interest. Um, and so I think North Carolina has the right rule in place. Uh, I think that's really important for us uh, to know. So it is a fiduciary position, but again, you want to appoint the, the person or persons who 
you were comfortable would make the right kind of decision for you. What you, you know, make a, a decision that's consistent with what you would do for yourself if you were acting on uh, for yourself. Now, with that said, it's really important to understand for the agent to understand, for the hospital to understand, the doctor. In in, in other words, for everyone to understand that a healthcare power of attorney, by its nature, by its own terms, is only valid when you personally cannot effectively communicate with your doctor. In other words, you can be really sick and out of it in some ways, but if you can still effectively communicate, if you can appreciate what the doctor's saying about your risks or your the options that you can take and the risks associated with those options, and you can choose what you would want done for yourself or choose to have nothing done at all, which, of course, is an important option for a lot of folks, depending on the circumstances, then... If, uh, if you can effectively communicate with your doctor, then you're the decision maker and your agent should not be involved in that decision. So who's the arbiter? Who, who's the person who comes in and says, oh, you can't effectively communicate? <laughs> well, it's the doctor. It makes it pretty simple. Nobody's going to court under those circumstances. It's the doctor who determines whether or not you can effectively communicate. And if the doctor is concerned about you're not being all there, your inability to um, know what's going on, your, your ability to tell the doctor um, what you want them to do, if the doctor thinks that that's not going to happen, then the doctor can turn to your agent and your agent can, in fact, and should, make the appropriate health care decision under those circumstances. But it's important to realize that it's, um, it is the uh, um, person who executes the documents that's still in charge. Now, uh, this, this um, rule, quite frankly, uh, is abused uh, by some. And I, I see it all the time, uh, particularly in nursing homes, where the nursing home actually do, doesn't work with the patient. They, work, they, they tend to work with the agent. They want the agent to sign everything, it seems. And, and truthfully, in my experience, it's because they, they want somebody to sign wrong. They want it, they wanted somebody to sign on the line that says responsible party so they have two folks on the hook <laughs> rather than one. And so that leads me to another thing. Um, but but uh, what I'm getting at is there are lots of folks uh, who go into a nursing home. My mother was one for sure, uh, who are perfectly lucid have strong opinions and are perfectly capable of making their own decisions and signing their own name. But typically the nursing homes will be talking to the 
child or the spouse and have the document signed by the child or the spouse as agent when, when they're appointed as the health care power of attorney. So that brings me to how do you sign those documents when they're put in front of you and you are the agent and it's appropriate for you to sign? Well, the first thing would be if you're the agent for a person who is more than capable of making decisions for themselves, then you should decline. You should say, no, mom can sign these documents. She knows what's going on. She's the one who's responsible. I don't need to be signing these documents because I'm not authorized anyway until or unless mom can't do it or dad can't do it. So, uh, But if it's appropriate, what you do when you're an agent is you sign your loved one's name. You sign their name, not yours. And then you put by, and then you can sign your name. And then after your name, you can put agent. That's the new North Carolina term. Or you can put POA. Everybody knows what that is. Uh, power of attorney. So when you do that, then it's very clear that you are signing on behalf of someone else as their fiduciary, and hence you are not personally responsible financially for uh, their circumstances. So that's really important for folks uh, to understand as it relates to a healthcare power of attorney. Now, you're looking at me like I know we have to take a break, so I'll, I'll let you do that. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about the healthcare power of attorney and some of the things you might not know about it. Excellent. We will resume the conversation right after this. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We are talking about legal documents, in particularly the healthcare power of attorney. And Bill, you went over the background of this, and just before the break, you were explaining why this is a, a, a key document and why signing your loved one's name and then putting by your name than agent or POA is important for liability reasons. It is. And that's, um, you know, the first time someone signs as an agent, uh, more often than not, uh, they don't know how to sign their name. Nobody's told them how to sign their name. or And so they just sign their name. And on a contract with a nursing home or an assisted living home or, or places like that, it, it, or even with a hospital or a surgical clinic or doctor, it, it can be a, an, a very important distinction uh, because it's an asset protection issue. You know, are, your, uh, are you responsible for um, your spouse or your parent or your siblings' uh, care financially? Uh, that is a, is a huge um, issue to undertake. So, when you're creating a healthcare power of attorney, who do you appoint as your agent? Well, this is sort of a no-brainer, but but obviously you appoint someone you absolutely trust to make healthcare decisions that are consistent with what you would want yourself. Uh, that's important as long as you have somebody like that 
Um, uh, and so it, you don't necessarily appoint your spouse or the oldest child uh, just because they're your spouse or your oldest child. I mean, because um, you, you, I've, I learned a long time ago that my spouse doesn't always agree with me. I mean, can you believe what? that? <laughs> Never could imagine that. So if your spouse doesn't believe what you believe, if your spouse doesn't agree with you on certain important issues that are that have to do with health care, then you may not want to appoint your spouse. Even though you love your spouse and you care for your spouse and you want what's best for your spouse, sometimes because of differences uh, in values and differences in how you think about things, um, your spouse may not be the appropriate person. Same thing with your children. And, and sometimes, now, just because somebody works in the healthcare field, you know, like they're a registered nurse or they're a medical doctor or something along those lines, again, that may not be your best choice. Just because they know medicine a little bit better than uh, uh, other members of your family doesn't mean that they share the same values when it comes to healthcare decisions for yourself. Um, again, oldest children, necess- not necessarily. Uh, it, it doesn't take the same kind of trust level that a general durable power because there's, it's not a financial decision going on. It's uh, whether to have a certain procedure or not or which one is best and, and those kinds of things, um, all of which can be uh, extremely important to you. But it's not unusual for me um, – when I have several people who are trustworthy uh, decision makers, uh, where I'll let any one of several, spouse, two or three children, any one of them individually could make the health care decision. But that's not true in all families. So it really comes down to your family and how it works. Now, uh, the health care power of attorney is not necessarily a canned document, Okay. But the most important thing about it is who is your agent, and uh, if you have a canned document, it'll work, (laughs) at least to the degree that it will have someone appointed as your agent who can make health care decisions for you when you cannot. Now, you may think, well, I'm healthy. I don't need that document, Uh, you know, but uh, I'll sign it when I need it. Well, the fact of the matter is you don't know if you'll be able to sign it when you actually need it. It's all of these documents that we're talking about, uh, it's 10 times better to have them done in advance and, and you hope that you'll never need them. But the fact is that almost all of us will need these documents at some point in our lives. So you think about it. If you're in, if you're in surgery of any kind where they put you to sleep, guess what? You're not in a position to make a decision if something bad should happen, uh, and a decision has to be made about uh, how to proceed. Those, those, um, th- that can happen to anybody, even those who are extremely healthy. Or you could be in a very serious accident. Uh, you could be in a whole lot of pain where you're given medication that makes you loopy. 
there um, you, you could have a horrible disease where your uh, where your memory is shot. I mean, there's just so many different circumstances um, that can affect our ability to make decisions. And so, having the ability to appoint someone is really important. Now, the healthcare power of attorney uh, also gives you the ability to refine how your healthcare, what your health care agent uh, can do. Now, as a general rule, I think it's extremely helpful for people to um, have um, broad authority. In other words, you don't want to try to limit your agent's authority in most cases uh, because you never know what kind of decision might be needed in terms of what your agent has to to uh, the decision they have to make, and if you limit it, it can make a huge difference. However, um, for and I, it also gives you opportunities to um, instruct your agent. Uh, for instance, I have numerous clients who will say, uh, "I want to direct my healthcare agent to not." Ag- um, approve an autopsy un- unless it's legally required, you know, like a criminal investigation or something along those lines. Um, they specifically um, uh, exclude the ability to approve an autopsy. Uh, and and that can be, not always, but it can be a religious thing, uh, a faith-based decision. Uh, others um, want to limit blood transfusions, uh, again, faith-based uh, issues, things like that. Uh, and um, also your health care power of attorney is where you can put in instructions for uh, what you want done at your death. A lot of, uh, you know, typically the general rule for any power of attorney is that it becomes void the moment you die. Uh, and in North Carolina, and I believe this is true in most states, um, your health care power of attorney actually remains valid for the purpose of your health care agent being able to make decisions regarding what to do with your body upon your death. That's the exception to the rule. And so, for instance, if, if you know that you want to be cremated or buried or whatever that decision is, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever you want. But you can put that in your health care power of attorney so that your agent knows exactly what you want, recognizing that they have a fiduciary duty to follow your directions. Now, some people want to put those directions in their last will and testament, and that is the absolute wrong place to do it because in most families, uh, they don't even look at your will until after the funeral arrangements are completed. In other words, you're either cremated or buried or whatever, and a week later they pull the will out and say, okay, let's figure out what we have to do now. So your will is not the place to put any kind of death instructions, but your health care power of attorney is actually an appropriate place where you can uh, make uh, those decisions. Now, the other thing that's really important about healthcare 
is, at least in, in my opinion, this is where once you've appointed your agent, whoever it is, you want to talk to them about how you feel about certain things. So, th- because you can't assume that your children know what you want. You can't, nec- I mean, in some cases, you can't assume that your spouse would know what you want. So, you have to have those discussions. And most people don't like to talk about those kind of things. So, you have to bring it up. And that's important for folks to understand. Um, and th- there's a wrong way to go about it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, a number of years ago, the AARP, and I love them. I think they do a great job. But I think they were wrong-headed when they put out a booklet. It was twenty, at least 20 pages long where it, it was like, if this happens, do this. If that happens, do that. I mean, it was just so minute. Uh, it was impossible. And that makes the agents work five times harder. And the problem with that kind of direction is that you might have believed that 10 years ago when you filled out that document, but you know, life changes and uh, the way you feel about things can change over time as well. So what you might have written down in the past may not be how you feel about it at the moment. And, and that's why those kind of documents scare, the, scare me. Uh, and I, I, uh, so I, I typically tell people not to do that. But the, having the conversations, the family conversations, those are really critical for families to have. As hard as they may be, it's so important to have them just so you avoid those situations, Bill, where you're getting care or having something done to you that you really didn't want to have done. A quick break and back more with Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF. This is Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander. You can find more about him online at WGALaw.com. That's Bill's website. You can find plenty of information there about him. I've got a new seminar coming up. Uh, it's a new month here, so coming up on June 12th, and we'll be talking a lot more about that next week here on the program. But if you're interested in finding out more about the seminars or you want to register online for free, WGALaw.com is the place to do it. And Bill, we've had a wonderful conversation related to the healthcare power of attorney. And I know you also wanted to spend some time here this morning talking about retirement accounts. I do. Um, You know, when it comes to asset protection, um, retirement accounts are sometimes the most important asset that people have. Years ago, not too many years ago, uh, you could almost uh, bet that a person's largest asset, um, a family's largest asset, was always their home. Uh, But that's not true anymore because lots and lots and lots of folks have retirement accounts that are far more uh, valuable uh, than the home, with one exception. And, and that is that you can't live in a retirement account and you have to pay taxes on it when you take it out. <laughs> but, but it's still an extraordinarily important 
asset. So, yes, there are a number of things I want to talk about as it relates to things, but there's a, a potential change going on right now that people need to know about it. And so if you have a retirement account uh, uh, or if you're a professional, a, a financial professional, a CPA, an accountant, uh, perk up because there uh, is a movement in Congress to uh, make some fairly significant changes uh, to retirement accounts and uh, how they work. Now, first, I need to make sure that folks understand that the law has not changed at this point. The United States House of Representatives, they have passed – I think unanimously, uh, bipartisan, uh, a bill. Now, a bill's not law until you get the same language that goes through the uh, House of Representatives and the United States Senate. The Senate has its own version, and the Senate version has not passed. <laughs> so, um, you know, making laws is like making sausage. You, you really don't know what you get until it's complete. Um, but uh, there are significant changes, whether you're looking at the, at the House bill or the Senate bill. Um, so uh, what uh, some – and quite frankly, as far as I am concerned, uh, the bill – does some good things, and it does some potential bad things, depending on um, how you have your retirement accounts. But it will, in fact, change strategies as it relates to holding certain retirement accounts uh, and whether or not you use Roth IRA accounts more. And I think that Roth accounts are going to become more and more important. Now, the Roth account, the Roth IRA is the account where you pay your tax in advance. In other words, uh, uh, and it's limited as to how much you can put in it each year, but it, um, but uh, you pay the tax in advance. And once it's in the Roth IRA, it accumulates tax, income tax-free, and when you take it out, even with all that growth inside there, um, it comes out income tax-free. So it's wonderful when it comes to those those uh, kind of assets. Now, there is a big limitation with the Roth, which is the fact that um, you can't take it out without a penalty for five years. So it's important that folks understand that it is a long-term investment, uh, as any retirement account should be for, for folks. But uh, for folks who are doing a Roth conversion later in life, it's important to understand that there's a five-year rule in terms of, of taking out uh, your Roth. Now, uh, some of the things that are helpful but not particularly meaningful for most employees is the fact that they're making the, the, this new uh, bill, if it becomes law, will make it easier for em employers to create retirement plans. Uh, they'll increase auto-enrollment for their employees uh, they'll simplify for the employer uh, this, the 401k safe harbor rules, which 
as an employer, that's a really good thing. Um, they will uh, increase the credit that employers get for uh, setting up uh, a retirement plan for their employees. Um, there's even one for small employers, which can be really helpful. And, and for small employers, that includes the simple IRA plan. A, um, a lot of employers um, don't realize that there's a number of different plans that they can choose from uh, in terms of setting up a retirement plan. So uh, particularly small employers really should seek a little bit of counsel rather than just knee-jerk automatically set up a, a 401k uh, plan, uh, even though it's going to be easier under the new rules to do so. And uh, here's, here's the deal. And I can, I'm saying this from experience <laughs> because as a small employer, I wanted to give my employees incentives. Um, and so I established a 401k plan. My, the financial advisor I was working with at the time, um, who was also a small employer, that's what he suggested. Well, after I got into it, um, there was a lot of work for me as the employer to do uh, in terms of record keeping, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I keep good records anyway, but uh, a lot of responsibility. Plus, we had to file reports with the Department of Labor. Uh, the 5,500 uh, uh, forms had to be filed. Um, they were a lot of trouble um, and not easy to do and not automatic, and not intuitive. And as a small employer, I had to do it myself. It's not like I had somebody I could, uh, you know, I didn't have a human relations or department <laughs> to fill out those forms for me. Well, I was getting really frustrated uh, having to do that, and it took a lot of time in order to just to, to offer a 401k plan. Uh and, and then, uh, you know, about five years later, I was talking to my financial advisor about how frustrated I was. And, and uh, you know what he said? This will really get to you. What's but that? He said, well, why don't you go over to a simple IRA plan? He said the only problem – I mean, the only difference is you're capped at 3% as to what you can contribute, uh, match your employee's uh, contribution. Uh, you know, the, the 401k allows you to match up to 6%. And most employers do four. And I was doing four under my other plan. Um, and I, I said, and then I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I have a simple IRA. Oh, man, I was pissed. Because it's like, well, why didn't you tell me about this before? So I wouldn't have had – because you don't have to do the 5,500 plan, and it's much simpler in terms of the employer's responsibility. Oh, I was so mad I couldn't see straight for months because of the fact that I'd been duped into a 401K plan when I could have had a simple IRA plan all along. So, <laughs> Not that you're still bitter about that. Uh, well, anyway, that's, that's uh, part of it. All right, so what are some of the other things – Number one, right now, um, when you when you have a regular IRA or 401k, 
when you turn 70 and one-half years of age, then you are required to take what's called minimum required distributions. In other words, you can't just continue to accumulate forever. Uh, now, you can do that in a Roth, but you cannot do that in a regular IRA, and you can't do it in a 401k or 403b plan. They all require re- withdrawals, minimum required uh, distributions at 70 and a half. Well, one of the big changes is moving it from 70 and a half to 72 in recognition that seniors are working longer than in years past. Um, that uh, can be helpful. There's another biggie if you're on the other side where you're still contributing, and, and that is um, – repealing the maximum age for traditional IRA contributions. Um, so, um, in, in other words, if you're, you can still, uh, you're not limited at 70 and a half, you can continue to contribute under this new bill. And that's, um, that's, that's a good thing as far as, uh, that goes. Um, now there are a lot of other parts to this, um, uh, but one of the biggies, and there, this is where the big difference is between the House version and the Senate versions. So the 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 worker who has contributed to um, the IRA uh, has, in essence, a lifetime minimum required distributions. And no matter how old you are, even if you're 100, you don't have to distribute the whole thing to yourself in one year because no matter how old you are, the life expectancy tables say you're going to live longer. Um, Now, so the rule stays the same for the worker, the contributor, and the contributor's spouse. So a, a spouse... Uh, typically has the same rights to uh, the account in terms of minimum required distributions, and that is not going to change. However, there's a big change afoot as it relates to leaving your traditional retirement accounts to your children. Um, And so, um, and and that can work a couple different ways, and so I, I need to separate out 401ks and IRAs and make sure you understand the difference on that. And I I know we have to take another break, but when we come back, I want to talk about that big change that will occur in terms of, or potential change that will occur uh, as it relates to leaving our retirement accounts to our children. We'll get to that in just a second. Stick around. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. To asset protection today with attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Bill Alexander. We're talking right now about retirement accounts and some potential legislation that could change how our retirement accounts behave. And Bill, just before the break, you were teasing us with uh, one of the major potential changes is how we leave our retirement accounts to our children. 
Right. And so let's uh, focus on the IRA, and then I'll come back to the 401k briefly. But uh, one of the uh, concepts right now that's really important to families is that we can, um, our children can stretch their IRAs. These are called inherited IRAs. This is where, and this could be child, grandchild, or anyone we leave it to other than our spouse. But these are called inherited IRAs, and a shrewd person can stretch these IRAs throughout their life. Now, even if you inherit an IRA and you're five years old, you will have a required minimum distribution, but it's based on your age. So it's just a minuscule amount if you're young, and then you have a, a different percentage each year. Uh, well, that's how the minimum distribution rules work. But people who understand how stretching works means that you can actually uh, – increase your portfolio significantly by stretching your IRA. And a lot of parents are concerned about their children and grandchildren taking the money out of their IRA quickly instead of leaving it there long-term for their own retirement. So it's a big deal. Now, under the House version of the bill, uh, everything has to be distributed out of an inherited IRA within 10 years. That means no stretch over a lifetime, 10-year distribution, and you're done. In other words, what that means is Congress gets more taxes because uh, you can't defer your income tax except for that 10-year period, uh, and that's your max. Now, the Senate version, there's a big difference that will protect most of us as it relates to stretch. What the Senate version does is, to, uh, and I believe the number is correct, it says the first $450,000 can be stretched over a lifetime, but anything over $450,000 has to be paid out within 10 years. So that's the difference between the, or the big difference that I'm aware of between the Senate version and the House version. So obviously the Senate version protects most of us which allows us to stretch our, our IRAs for our children and grandchildren without any problem. But there, those who have very large retirement accounts, those folks are will be affected by either plan, but even those folks still have a huge portion that can be stretched. So that's a big rule change. Well, obviously those folks with the bigger um, – well, depending on which version passes, uh, one thing where the numbers are going to change is where it, there will be more incentive for folks to convert over to the Roth IRA so that you still have a nice uh, retirement account, which is so important. Now, before I finish on this area, because I know I have very lim limited time, is that if you're looking at a 401k type plan, remember that's an employer plan, it's the employer's rule. Uh, employer plans, oftentimes you cannot stretch them. They require a, uh, an immediate payout or they, re or they limit you to a five-year payout. Uh, or you also have a rule right now that can, uh, if you don't do uh, the distribution correctly, then you have a, an automatic five-year payout. But it's up to the custodian and the rules of the custodian as it, when you're talking about a 401k 
that's one of the reasons why I think most people now there are exceptions, but a lot of folks should in fact move a 401k into an IRA. And that gives you far more flexibility in what you do with it over your lifetime and your children's lifetime. So very important folks to to know the limitations when they're dealing with a 401k or any kind of employer plan because it's the employer's rules and the custodian rules that matter. It requires reading that jumbo packet that you get when you're hired. And, you know, that's no fun, but it is very important to make sure that your money is doing exactly what you want it to. A quick break and back and more with Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander on News Radio 680 WPTF. You're listening to Asset Protection Today with attorney Bill Alexander. Jason Kong here reminding you that you can find more information about Bill at WGALaw.com. That's where you can register for this month's seminar. You can also schedule an appointment with Bill. Maybe you need help setting up a health care power of attorney, which we discussed earlier in the show. WGALaw.com is the website, or you can call 919 919- Two five six seven thousand nine one nine two five six seven thousand. On behalf of Bill Alexander, I am Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Asset Protection Today with Attorney Bill Alexander here on News Radio six eighty WPTF. Have a wonderful weekend. <music> 